0: For the resurrection, and uh, last week we talked quite a bit about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, the way that the New Testament presents this to us is that, uh, at least the, the way the Apostle Paul does in particular, the, the whole historic Christian faith essentially rests on this one great event. If, he, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we have no reason to believe that he accomplished anything for our salvation at the cross or in his life. And, and we would have to uh, deduce that he was either lying when he said that he would be raised from the dead, or that he was crazy, deluded. Uh, so as C.S. Lewis once put it, uh, essentially Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Those are our options. He, he either uh, told the truth about his resurrection, which would make him Lord, or he... Was not telling the truth, or was deluded about it, uh, because he didn't rise from the dead. If he didn't, and so, but what's what is not an option is for anyone to say, I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe that he rose from the dead, but I think he's a good man. If he's lying about what he what he accomplished. Uh, what he said he would accomplish, or if he was crazy, then that's not somebody that we want to follow. That's not somebody that we want to order our lives around, and there's no point in being a Christian. And so th- this is huge, not only for uh, apologetic purposes, you know, talking ab- defending the faith and talking about the gospel with others, but also for our own faith. Uh, So, that's what we want to continue thinking about. So, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for bringing your word to us. Thank you for opening our hearts to receive it. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who fought for our sakes, and the one through whose one righteous act, the many, have been justified and saved. And we come to you now, Lord, rejoicing and in gratitude for the salvation you have bestowed upon us in the Lord Jesus And we ask, Lord, that you would give us greater insight and understanding of what your word proclaims and the the facts that have been recorded uh, regarding the resurrection of your son and the one in whom we put our trust. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, before I go through the five E's, uh, a few things I want to help us to understand regarding resurrection that sometimes we might not have a a clear understanding about. Uh, First of all, when we're speaking about a resurrection, we don't mean resuscitation. Those are two different things. We don't mean Jesus was in the tomb and then his body was resuscitated and then he came out. He wasn't even raised from the dead in the same way that... uh, for example, Lazarus was raised from the dead uh, by Jesus himself. Because Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was raised with a glorified body. His body is transformed. And that is what we look forward to, as having glorification. Not resuscitation, but resurrection. A resurrected universe. It's qualitatively and fundamentally new kind of life. Even though there is a continuity with uh, this body, it's this body that will be resurrected, uh, there is also a qualitative difference in the resurrection. So important that we understand that. Secondly, the resurrection, when we talk about our resurrection, you know, resurrection from the body, now this is a resurrection of the body. This is very important. This is probably the most misunderstood thing about the resurrection, Amongst many Christians today. Resurrection is not dying and going away to heaven. In fact, the word heaven, I think, is a word that's often misunderstood. Uh, There is what's called the intermediate state. You know, when you die, and you will die unless Jesus comes first, uh, we will go the way that all others have gone. Uh, Body and soul separate. That's what death is. Uh, Every person is made of two parts, body and soul, Uh, and body is who you are apart from your conscious state of being, your soul, which is who you are apart from your body, but both make up you. And so, uh, you know, it's been said sometimes when at a funeral, you know, well, that's not grandma, you know, grandma's in heaven. No, that is grandma, that's grandma's body. Grandma's soul has gone to be with the Lord. And Grandma's soul and body will be reunited on the last day at the resurrection. That's when Christ comes back. Yes, that's right. That's right, Betty. And so Paul says that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, that, uh, Paul, that Jesus is the first fruits. He's the only one who's been resurrected. He's the only one with a glorified body. And yet the rest of the harvest, all of us, all those for whom he came to save, they will be resurrected, body and soul, when He returns, and He is and He returns visibly, gloriously, and uh, and physically. It's a physical body. So. That's right. Yeah. Sure. Well, okay. But here's what we mean by heaven: is that. This, uh, first Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5 sa- you know, says essentially to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. That is indeed true. You know? So any, any Christian we know who has died is consciously with the Lord Jesus Christ in what we would call heaven. But we ha- here's, what, here's where the misunderstanding comes, is that that's not the end. That's not the final state. That's the intermediate state. The final state, where where is heaven ultimately? Where will you live? On some cloud, some place, beyond this galaxy? That's not what the Bible says. Here, on earth. Romans 8 says it's going to be a new earth. The creation's groaning for that. And so we don't have to worry about heaven being some weird, unknown, ethereal, non-physical Material play. Those are ideas that came out of Platonism, not the Bible, which tries to separate the physical from the spiritual, the material from the immaterial. God made matter and God declared it good. And so the, the universe will be resurrected and we will live. You know, rocks, trees, uh, you know, and I would argue oceans and seas. When it, the Bible says, when Revelation says, the sea will be no more, I don't think it's, it's not talking about a physical sea there, it's a symbol of evil. But the point is is that the resurrection of Christ is the the model for our resurrection and all of the universe's resurrection. And what was the resurrection of Christ like? He was in a real body, one you could touch. He had vocal cords that vibrated, that gave him voice. John chapter 21, yeah, says that he was eating, which I personally find very comforting. You know, so all of, the, all of the language about uh, you know, fine food and fine wine, like from Isaiah 25, you know, the Lord will give you know, meat and bone full of marrow and aged wine, well refined. There is no reason for us to think that we want to enjoy those things, particularly when the Lord Jesus appoints bread and wine as the sacrament for us to enjoy until the return. So this is very important because there's a Platonist idea that you know, and a kind of a Gnostic idea that well, your your soul escapes the body, which is basically a prison house for the soul, because that's how remember that's how Plato and uh, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher, and uh, many of the Greek philosophers thought. The body is something you want to escape. It's this you know big carcass that is you know, it gets sick, it aches, you have to feed it. And if the soul can escape that body, then you have freedom. And this is a common idea that runs all over our culture today. Uh, the idea that the soul escapes and then becomes part of the one, the universe. And it, it's crept into Christianity, where people think that, well, when you die, the body just you know dissipates, and then you float away and you go to heaven. That was the error that the Corinthians had adopted, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, saying, no, 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 there's going to be a resurrection. Yeah, the soul immediately goes to be with the Lord. There is no purgatory, there's no soul sleep, but that's not the completion of salvation. Anybody that we know who has died in Christ, their salvation is not yet complete. Our salvation will be complete when we have a resurrected body on the last day. Now, they're not in any pain, they're not in any suffering, but anything less than, than understanding that the body will be resurrected is, is not a Christian idea. It's a Gnostic or Platonist idea. And so the Lord is very interested. You know, I think C.S. Lewis said, uh, God loves matter. He invented it. And that's indeed the way that the New Testament presents the resurrection. So the resurrection is not simply dying... And going to heaven, uh, we are looking forward to what we confess in the Apostles and Nicene Creed every week, I believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Think about that line, the resurrection of the body. People do not have, here's the other thing, people do not have their resurrection, resurrection bodies in heaven. Because it's very clear, 1 Thessalonians, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, that... Uh, uh, the resurrection will happen on the last day. It does not happen in heaven. And this is sometimes where we, we say things sometimes that I know mean well because we want to make ourselves feel better and make other people feel better, but aren't true. When we say things like, yeah, I know Grandma right now is, you know, jumping and rejoicing and dancing on streets of gold. You have no, we have no right to say something like that. Not according to Scripture. I know we want to mean well, but we have it out of order. Because the, the, all we know from Scripture is that the soul that is separated from the body is with the Lord, but we're awaiting that day. Paul even says those who, that the Lord will bring with those whom sleep in Jesus, and that the, those uh, who have died will not uh, proceed uh, there, there will, there, there's going to be a one resurrection at the end where those who remain will have their bodies uh, transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And that the resurrection will happen at the same time. Yeah, right. So would those in the intermediate stage still have the same concept of time? As... I don't know. Yeah. Those are, there's all kinds of questions like that that we don't know. They, they go beyond the bounds of the text. I mean, it's a, it's a good question that we wonder, right? But all we do know is that they, they will not yet have a, bo- a resurrected body until the last day because of what Paul says, well, in many places, but, but one, most importantly, is uh, here in 1 Corinthians 15, where he makes that long argument, and he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 23 But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and here's the kicker, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. At his coming. So to say that, you know, um, my uncle is playing golf on those golf courses in the sky is just not, it's not true. It's not, and it's not helpful. It's actually distorting the biblical image. Right. Right. She is with the Lord, Betty. All we know is that to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, she's absent from the body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Think of Jesus on the cross when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting the Psalms. Spirit, soul, same thing. They're not different. The same thing. And that's his conscious state of being, his body, which is, is now absent from the soul, goes into the tomb. But his soul goes to be with the Father. Now, how do you picture that? You don't. You don't. You take it for what it says. That's it. We don't try to draw a picture. We don't try to describe it. We stop where God's Word stops. And I want to beg us all to, to do that. Just stop where God's Word stops. That's sufficient. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, and we know that there's no more pain, but we're waiting for that day, because it says here, then at his coming, then at his coming, uh, the, the rest ultimately shall be raised. Those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign so he's put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What is death? The separation of body and soul. That enemy is still roaming around, and will not ultimately be destroyed until the last day. And that is when there will be death no more. Well, Betty, I would say come to the service tonight. I'm going to talk about that very thing. Mm-hmm. But here, I'll give, you, I'll give you a little teaser. People have been cutting heads off for all the time. There is no difference. Things are not getting worse. And I plead with you, uh, American Christians, uh, you know, as horrific as uh, you know, the terrorists are today, of people like ISIS... There is, no, there is nothing different. This is not, not a new kind of evil. That kind of evil has been in the world forever. The only difference is they got 1080 GoPros, and they're putting it on the Internet. That's the only difference. And if you read the, the, the terrors of, of Stalin and Hitler and the Japanese, or you, I mean, this kind of stuff has gone on for all time. So... Um, and what about the Mexican cartels? They put heads on stakes all the time. But anyway, we're, we're getting away. So let's just stay with me, and then I'll, I'll give some questions. At, I'll, I'll have time for questions at the end. I know this is interesting. It is. We start speculating and wondering. But we've got to stick with Scripture. We've got to stick with Scripture. I, I would urge you to read 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, yeah, the whole thing. All 58 <laughs> verses. All 58 verses. Yep. Right. Yeah, the, all 58 verses, and, and uh, then you can begin doing a study. I mean, it's, it's, not the, it's pretty simple. I mean, uh, even uh, an untrained layperson with an English Bible can, can really see this doctrine clearly. It's, it's pretty clear about the, uh, the resurrection. So it's not simply dying and going to heaven. There is, that's called the intermediate state. Uh, we rejoice even though we grieve. This is why we cry at, wedding, or at weddings. Sometimes we cry at weddings too. We cry at funerals is that uh, a death is horrific and sad. It's unnatural. It's, the, it's an attack on what God has made good. We, it doesn't matter even if the person is a Christian and we know they're with the Lord. It grieves us. It breaks our heart that they're not there anymore. I know. And we can't, and we can't uh, hold them. We can't talk to them. They're gone. Uh, but we have the hope that they will be raised from the dead. We have the hope because Christ was raised from the dead. And now how do we know it's not just a fairy tale? That's what I'm getting at. How do we know that this is true? Uh, Well, the third thing I want to say is that the, the resurrection is not just living in one's memory. I hear that oftentimes today. People say, well, yes, they've been raised in the sense that they go on living in my memory. Well, people don't live in our memories the same way that they consciously live in the presence of the Lord, and even more so will live in the resurrection. Um, Christ wasn't raised in our hearts as sort of a memory. He was truly raised from the dead, and people saw him, recorded that, and as John says, that which we heard and touched and handled, we declare to you. Uh, The the resurrected, glorified Jesus, body and soul, ate fish with the disciples. Uh, In John 21, after the resurrection, he's the first fruits. That's what we have to look forward to. Philippians 3, our bodies will be conformed unto his. Uh, So we're looking forward to that. Uh, How do we know, though, that Christ was really raised from the dead? Well, like I said, I like to use, for my own memory's sake, five E's as evidences. And this is not only for uh, apologetic purposes, you know, when you're having a discussion with somebody, although that is great. Let me say, that is the best way to, I want to say this again, I said it last week, that's the best way to talk to somebody about the gospel. I mean, sometimes you're going to talk to somebody because they're hurting, they're lonely, they're sad, and maybe that's an inroads. But I'm telling you, more and more and more. I find that the best way to talk to people is just to say, hey, at the end of the day, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, I'm not interested in Christianity. I'll go find a different religion that, I don't know, works for me better. But Christianity causes you to give up things. You have to give up certain things. You can't go on living the life that you want. You live the life that that God wants. Uh, If he's been raised from the dead, that makes all the difference in the world. And so sometimes I'll ask people, like when they say, oh, you know, are you a pastor? Yeah, are you a believer? Um, No, I'm not a believer. And just for the heck of it, I'll say, so what do you do with the resurrection of Christ? Have you ever said that to somebody? Why not? It's a question. You're asking them what they believe. You're asking them to present something. You know, what's the worst that they're going to do? Pull a gun and shoot you? No, see, and sometimes we're so afraid. We see those Philistines, and we just think there's no chance. Just ask them. Might be, they've they've probably never even thought about that before. They just think you're a Christian because you found a religion that works for you, or you were raised that way. You know, but me, I was raised in an agnostic home. And so you just do things culturally. We all got to make sense philosophically somehow out of this world and this life. And you got religion of one form. And just ask them this. What do you do with the resurrection of Christ? And then they'll, oftentimes they'll go, well, you know, I, they haven't read it. They haven't read Luke and Acts. And, and what they've heard is a misrepresentation of Christianity. Try it this week. That's your assignment. Your you. No, you don't need a Bible with you. No. But just ask them. Tell them they can look it up. They got internet. Yeah. Well, but just try it this week. Try it this week. That's your assignment. Ask one person when you have the opportunity. They won't cut your head off, I promise. They won't. I I doubt it. Uh, But I but try it. Just ask a question. You know, remember, questions are always the best thing. You don't have to make a statement when you can give a question. Don't give up the high ground. Just say, you know, well, how did you, what makes you think that? How did you come to that conclusion? You know, what do you, what do you think about the resurrection of Christ? And they'll say, what do you mean? Maybe. And remember, this isn't a fight. Some Christians turn this, and some Reformed Christians are really bad about this. They turn everything into a fight. We don't need to make it a fight. You're trying to win the person. Picture that person worshiping next to you in the pew one day. Not, ha, I defeated his argument, and now I never have to see that guy again. No, you're, the idea is to win him one day. And so how do we do that? We give him some things to believe. You say, what do you do with the resurrection? He says, well, what do you mean? You say, question, what do you do with the empty tomb? Okay, I'm going to put question marks here to remember always a question why questions you're allowing time to think <laughs> but you're also even if you even if you can't think of anything else to say or you just get too scared or he starts pulling out a knife buddy <laughs> then all you do is at that point yeah you just leave it alone you back out but at least you put a rock in his shoe okay that he's going to walk around with now what did he mean by empty tomb? There's an empty tomb. You see, you don't have to hit a home run, just get on first base. As Greg Kochel says. It's and it's really it's not hard. We the only thing that is in our way is fear. And where does fear come from? Not from the Lord. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of self-control. Fear is of the devil. You know, you, you we only have so long to live, guys. Start putting rocks in people's shoes. The Lord will bring somebody else to maybe say more that you, at that, that moment, didn't have the courage to say. That's okay. Or maybe you'll be the person that the Lord sends with the guy and a rock in his shoe. But as we'll also see, these things are also good for our own faith. I come back to them again and again and, and remain a Christian. I remain a Christian largely because of these things. I say that. And we need to teach our young people that. So that they don't get to a university one day and have a professor who says, "Um, can you think of a set of circumstances, if proven true, that you would deny the faith and leave Christianity? And without thinking, he says, no. I'll believe no matter what. At that moment, he has discredited himself and his beliefs and he's in the hands of of that professor. The better thing to say, what the Apostle Paul would have said is, sure, produce the bones of Jesus. Produce the bones of Jesus, and tell me, answer these questions for me. What do you do with the empty tomb? Why is that important? Why is that important? The Gospels and and the book of Acts report that the tomb was empty, now, that, that also fits with archaeological data, such as burial customs, construction of tombs, timing of ceremonial events. And this was never refuted okay, by those who challenged Christianity. The hostile witnesses, the Romans, who were responsible for the execution of Jesus and the, guarding the tomb, and the Jewish leaders who wanted the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead to end. So what do you do with the empty tomb? What do you mean? Well, have you ever considered? Again, question. The, the hostile witnesses, the Romans and the Jews, never refuted that. Guys, if you can just get that far, if you can just get that far, and then, you know, your heart's pounding out of your chest, then, okay, you're done. You know, Switch. What do, you, what do you what do you think of you know James Shields now on the Padres? Uh, but you did something, you said something. But again, for my own faith, from personally, this also helps. The Romans and the Jews did not deny that the tomb was empty. They had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to produce the body if the tomb was not empty. This also refutes some of the. Uh, the uh, theories about the resurrection, which we'll get to next week, such as uh, you know the women went to the wrong tomb. It's silly. As soon as the as soon as the news began report, uh, began to spread uh, about Jesus being raised from the dead, they could have gone to the tomb and produced the body. They had the means, the motive, and the opportunity, uh, but they didn't. And it's important that we we consider that. There's a Jewish historian. Uh, Gaza Vermes, he said in Jesus the Jew, a historian's reading of the Gospels, this is from 1973, when every argument has been carefully weighed, the only conclusion acceptable to the historian, remember historians are to uh, uh, examine data, uh, facts from history, must be the opinions of the orthodox, the liberal sympathizers, and the critical agnostic alike, and even perhaps the disciples themselves, are simply interpretations of the one disconcerting fact. This guy's not a Christian. Namely, that the women who set out to pay their last respects to Jesus found to their consternation, not a body, but an empty tomb. There was an empty tomb. So what do we do with that fact? Either he was raised from the dead or the body was taken out for some reason. The next E is the eyewitnesses. And then question mark. Because you can say, well, what do you do about the eyewitnesses? Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm just saying, when you read the book of Acts, you read the Gospels, there were eyewitnesses, not just one or two. And here's where sometimes people with a little bit of knowledge of the Bible, again, because they're always looking for an excuse to justify not submitting to Christ. And so they'll often say things like, well, what do you do? In one, one book it says there was one angel. In another book there was two angels. Uh, you know, Are those your eyewitnesses? I mean, these are the kinds of things I've heard people say to me um, what I like to do at that point is go to First Corinthians 15 and show that, look, Paul says here, this is the gospel, and he, and he appeared. First to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which means have died. So there's the, the apostles, which they call the twelve, plus the five hundred. What do you do about the eyewitnesses? And again, from my own faith, I think about that. Well, if this isn't true, what do I do with that? All these people who said they saw him, were they all deceived? Was this like the Heaven's Gate cult in Rancho Santa Fe, where they believed that you know, a spaceship was going to come and take them all away? Well, no, they didn't all drink cyanide at once. That's easy. These guys all saw, and they went different directions. And they went proclaiming what they saw. And then not only that, they began to record it, which is really amazing. Uh, The physician Luke begins his gospel by saying, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Now these were not crazy men. Uh, They had seen Christ with their own eyes. That's why Peter says in the second epistle that they did not follow cleverly devised myths, and why on the day of Pentecost, he preached in his sermon that God raised up Jesus from the dead, and he says, and of that, We are all witnesses. So he would not have stood up in public and uh, put his life at risk and the the lives of his fellow disciples at risk, especially when they had been hiding only days before, if he had not seen the Lord Jesus. And we we have to reckon with that fact. What do we do with that? How does that that fit if Jesus really wasn't raised from the dead? The factuality of an event, remember, is determined by the probability of the evidence supporting it. And this is a powerful piece of evidence. A powerful piece of evidence. Yeah? Right, right. Right. And they say, yeah, but I don't believe the Bible. And, and typically, I would say 99% of the time um, that that happens, and it happens frequently, um, you're talking with somebody who is unfamiliar with the Bible. Um, so then I have another set. We can, go through, we can go through that after Easter if you want, of how to defend the Bible. Because it usually diverts into that. There are, you know what? There are only two apologetic questions in my mind. You know, people who try to argue for the existence of God, to me, is like, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle? It's, there's only two. It, did Christ, was Christ raised from the dead? And how can I trust the Bible? If you can just nail those two. Everything else is just chicken scratch. So we can do that after. Um. Right. Short answer is short answer is because we have a few minutes left. Short answer is, um, have you read the Bible? And uh, have you read have you really read Luke and Acts? And say, you know, have would you? What if it's true? What if maybe it's true? What happened? Again, question, question, question. Ping them with questions. What if it's true? Have you examined the evidence? This is the other reason why I remain a Christian, because the Bible. How could you make sense? How how could these forty authors write this one story over the period of thousands of years in sixty-six books in different genres, and it all proclaims Christ. That doesn't make any how does the only thing that makes sense is that God did this. And so you want to share that with, with others. But um, Okay, so eyewitnesses. The next one is, do you remember from last week? Enduring transformation of the apostles. ETA, estimated time of arrival, right? Enduring transformation of the apostles. Let's not go from here and say, what was ETA again? Enduring transformation of the apostles. Now, why is this important? Because remember, these guys were hiding for their lives from these guys, the Romans and the Jews. And yet, what caused them to turn from cowards to bold preachers. Well, yes, the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost and fills them with boldness. And boldness is really the thing that you see throughout Acts that marks the apostles' preaching. Now they're bold. But there would be no boldness if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Because that's what they're proclaiming. And if you read their the sermons throughout Acts, almost every time it, the resurrection is central. Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. And then they quote Psalms and Old Testament passages that point to that. And they say, of this we are all witnesses. And why it's important that you get the E is that they weren't just transformed for a few days, but they were transformed until they died. And again, they all went different spots. You know, if, they, if we're talking about one or two guys, you know, um, one Muhammad. well, then, you know, it's, it's a little harder to believe that. But you're talking about a bunch of guys that began preaching the truth, and they went different ways, and they gave up so much. My favorite, of course, is Saul of Tarsus. What accounts for that? That's something I constantly come back to. What accounts for the transformation of Saul of Tarsus if Christ wasn't raised from the dead? What would cause a distinguished first century Hebrew scholar of the Torah, a member of the Jewish party of the Pharisees, and a Roman citizen? What would cause this guy who is so zealous in his devotion to destroy Christianity, to then proclaim Christianity. I mean, he perceived Christianity as a dangerous and and, uh, destructive heresy of Judaism. He persecuted the church. What would turn him into the greatest apostle? Was it money? No, he didn't have any of that. Was it uh, power? No, he didn't have any of that. What would cause him? to do these things. He was the last apostle, the last one to have witnessed the physically raised Lord and be commissioned by him. And then all the others as well. James, the brother of John, beheaded in Jerusalem by Herod in AD 44. Philip was scourged and crucified in Greece in AD 54. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece, AD 60. Matthew, pinned to the ground and beheaded in Ethiopia in AD 60. Peter crucified upside down in Rome in AD 64. Thomas executed with spears in India in AD 70. Bartholomew flayed alive in Armenia. Um, Matthias, which was uh, Judas Iscariot's replacement, stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. And then Judas Thaddeus was crucified in Edessa, Greece in AD 72. Simon martyred in Persia. What accounts for that? That they all went these different ways they don't obtain the glory of the world and they, they have difficult lives and they all die in martyrdom. They were transformed, yes, by the Holy Spirit, but because of an event, the event of the resurrection. Uh, we'll go over the next two next week, but I'll at least say what they are. Uh, the, the fourth is one that you'll never hear this Easter time by the pundits on TV the explanation of Old Testament prophecy. You know, when you get these guys, like uh, uh, John Dominic, John Dominic Croissant. Where does, he, where does he teach now, Ryan? Is he at Duke? I think, uh, um, you, you'd recognize him if you saw him on TV. Uh, you know, these opponents of Christianity, they're all at the Ivy League schools, the biggest universities, and they're just fierce opponents of Christianity and they're trying to debunk the resurrection. But you'll notice what they do is they, always, they only interact with the gospel records, and they try to debunk the discrepancies, which we'll see are actually not a problem for us. If you have uh, a bunch of guys getting together and uh, retelling what they saw, normally there's going to be discrepancies. If everything is perfectly the same, then everybody would say, oh, well, they just got together and got their story straight. And presented it. But no, I mean, uh, Charlie, you are a cop. You know that when you're interviewing four or five witnesses, yeah, there's going to be some discrepancies, but you see the common thread, right? So if all four of us, or if there's four of us, or a bunch of us, out on these four corners, uh, right here in Mass and Magnolia, and there's a big accident involving, you know, five cars. Well, whatever. Uh, but imagine, imagine, you, yeah, right. That's my point. I only saw four cars. Well, I saw five. Now, the fact that John only saw four cars doesn't contradict the fact that I saw five. He just saw four. It's like, oh, well, we can't believe any of this stuff. You know, the accident never happened. You know, one guy's saying four, the other guy's saying five. You get the idea. And I say, yeah, the main guy driving, there there were two people in the car. John says, I saw one. The fact that he saw one and didn't see the other doesn't mean there wasn't another. You see the idea. And any lawyer will tell you a credible, a credible case is going to involve uh, credible discrepancies like that. Not contradictions, but if there were none, then it would be easy to say, well, they all got together and said, let's all meet at John's house. Let's get our story straight. And then let's... which Which totally begs the question, why would they get their story straight, go proclaim these things, and end up not once, but multiple times in prison, uh, being beat, uh, having friends depart from them. What would cause the Apostle Paul to undergo five floggings, stonings, uh, uh, shipwrecks? What would cause him to do that if he knew the resurrection hadn't happened? See, I have to account for those things. This is why I remain a Christian. Not because I just have so much love in my heart. But because I believe that something happened. And I believe it's foolish not to believe it. I believe what the Bible has has testified. Let me get through the rest of these real quick. We'll talk about this next week because explanation of Old Testament prophecy, it goes, it makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes sense out of the development of the Old Testament. And then the last one is external witnesses. Again, we'll go over this, but external means outside the Bible. And what we'll find is that there were Greek and Roman and Jewish writers uh, at the time of the first century who, uh, who weren't saying, we've seen Jesus, but they were saying, yeah, there's people going around saying we've, they've seen Jesus. And that fact, see, and that gets back to your, your question. That It goes beyond the history. But see, what happens, this is what really happens with people. They don't want the facts. And that always presents another question I ask do you want answers? I said, that's a good question. Do you want answers? Because some people don't want answers. What they want is to go on living their lifestyle. And, they're, and they've got something to hang their, their objection on, and they're holding on to that. Uh, but to say that, well, there is, if you examine the history, there's some good evidence, and there's a reason uh, why I'm a Christian. So, all right, we're going to stop there. And if you have questions afterwards, I'll I'll entertain those. And we'll go over the last two weeks next week. And then we'll begin going through uh, some of the different theories that try to discredit uh, Christianity or the resurrection. So, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for what your word proclaims, that you have, by your spirit, raised Christ, your son, from the dead, and that he was seen by many witnesses. We thank you that uh, we can rely upon these facts as being true and credible. And we thank you, O Lord, uh, that you have promised eternal life and the forgiveness of sins to all who come to you through Jesus Christ, the living one, and the one who has ascended into heaven at your right hand. It's in his name we pray. Amen.